Welcome to the Oxford Martin School. I'm Alison Stibby. I'm the Head of Communications here at the school. And we have a wonderful seminar today from Professor Charles Godfrey. This is the third seminar in our series on Is the Planet Full? We started a couple of weeks ago with a seminar from philosopher Toby Ord. He gave us some new perspectives on whether the planet is full and perhaps there are opportunities that we could be looking at in this explosion of people. Last week we had Mark New talking about water <coughs> and the pressures on our global water system, especially due to extra demands from population growth. Today we have Professor Charles Godfrey talking about the future of food. He is eminently qualified to talk on the matter, having been chair of the expert group for the UK government's foresight report on the future of food and farming. He is also a director of our very new Oxford Martin program on the future of food. And here he is just launching efforts to pull together research from across the University of Oxford, all on this area. So it's a very collaborative project and we're really looking forward to the outcomes of that. So I give to you Professor Charles Godfrey. Thanks very much, Alison. And, um, I don't know about the state of the planet, but if the fullness of this room is anything to go by, then I think we have some real problems. But I'm delighted to see so many people here. So as Alison says, I'm going to be talking about some of the challenges of feeding 9 to, two to 10 billion people. And I'm going to be talking quite a bit about uh, the report that Alison mentioned, the Foresight Report, although I should say right from the beginning that this is my personal take rather than the government's response as in the uh, Foresight Report. Um, I wonder if we might have the, at least some of the lights down so we can see the screen, if that's possible. I'm going to start off by just saying a, uh, a few words about what Foresight is, just very briefly for those of you who are not familiar to it. Foresight is a unit within the Government Office of Science which has a strapline helping government th think systematically about the future. I did mention to someone in, uh, in, in Go Science, Government Office of Science, well, do you have a hindsight unit as well, systematically thinking? And he said, not altogether kindly, no, that's what we think that Oxford does for us. <laughs> so, uh, and so what Foresight does is it commissions studies on various topics, largely that are science-based, but including natural the social sciences as well as the natural sciences, economics to uh, examine topics that are going to be of major policy concern looking ahead of the order of 20 or 30 years. And the current government chief scientist is John Beddington. And John Beddington, throughout his career, his background is very similar to mine, actually, as a population biologist, has been very interested in resources. He's an expert on fisheries, but in food in general. And when he took over the uh, position about um, four years ago now, he developed an analogy called the perfect storm, which uh, perhaps it's a little bit hackneyed now, but when John first brought it in, it was a wake-up to us about just what was happening with the food system. And I'll say a bit more about that in a second. And almost immediately after he developed this, uh, this, uh, this narrative, we then suddenly saw the spike in food prices, which, again, people have said this was John rapidly buying up wheat futures, but I think was just... <laughs> an example of John thinking, thinking ahead. And the perf when they make the movie of John's time, the government chief scientist do clearly be George Clooney who plays John. <laughs> and what, the foresight, what a foresight program does is it um, generates a series of research studies, sort of reviews, 
Um, it uses scenarios looking ahead and various other future type things to examine the, the policy space and the possible solutions. Uh, and then it crystallizes it into a, uh, into a report. And both the report, a summary of the report, and then the 3,000 or so pages of different evidence, I believe in sort of uh, argument by weight when it comes to these things. All that material is available on the, um, on the website. Uh, I had the privilege of chairing what is called the lead expert group, which is the group outside government that steers the result and writes a large part of the, of the uh, report. I won't go through who's on it, but I had the most fabulous group of people to work with. I will mention one person, Camilla Toulman, who's director of the International Institute of Environment and Development. Uh, she's moved to Oxford. Um, not, uh, she now lives in Oxford as her husband's master of uh, St. Cross, and I hope that will be getting her involved with various things at the school and in the programme. So what I'm going to do in this talk, I, the talk's in four unequal parts. I'm first going to talk a little bit about the problem, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the problem because you've all probably been battered by people saying um, what a dire state the world is in. But then I'm going to spend most of the time talking about three separate topics. One is the issue of balancing supply and demand of food sustainably, keeping supply and demand sufficiently in kilter that we don't get massive increases in food prices. And in fact, about half the talk is going to be in that. And then I want to look at two issues that are critical in doing this, the needs of the world's poorest and what I've called the sustainability challenge, the fact that we have to produce food in a very different way. So the first of the four parts is the growing pressure on the food system. And clearly, we've all been reading uh, a lot about the issues of population at the moment. Slightly artificially, the UN says that the seven billionth person is going to be born um, is going to be born uh, uh, this week or, or next week. Um, that projection is slightly out of date, but only slightly out of date. It's from Wolfgang Lux's group in the IASA in Vienna. Wolfgang's is associated with Sarah Harper's uh, Institute of, of Aging. And that's the best guess of what populations are going to do um, towards the end of the century. And you can see that there are big confidence limits. But there's both alarming news there and there's also encouraging news there. The alarming news is population is going to go up. With some scenarios, it could go up really dramatically. The really encouraging news there, and I, I, I don't think I can emphasize it more strongly on this, especially someone like me with a background in population biology, is that we can now, really over the last 20 years, we can actually think that ultimately populations will plateau, that there will be a limit to the amount of pressure humanity is going to place on, on the world. And again, Sarah Harper it would be the person to really talk about that. But this demographic transition means that me, age 52, uh, 53 actually, I'm more of an... It's my birthday today. <laughs> I'm, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to, uh, to put, put, put that up. Just got my date wrong. Where was I? Yes. I'm more of an optimist now, just over 52, than I was when I was 26. When I was 26, a young population biologist, I'd read Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb, a really, really important book that could really have been right. So I think it's everything to play for. But of course, it's not only that we're going to have more people, those people are going to be wealthier. And in many ways, that's a good thing. But wealthier people have a greater footprint on resources. Let me illustrate this by livestock con consumption, meat consumption. That's us in the developing nations. We can't physically eat much more meat than we do in Europe and North America at the moment. But look at China. China is coming up. 
Meat takes much more resources, at least as we produce it now, to, uh, to pr more resources to produce than, um, than uh, grains and other plant food. Uh, there's some interesting patterns here. So India, which is going through virtually the same development trajectory as China, its diet is changing much less than China. There are really complex social, political, cultural, religious factors at work here. Uh, it's something we're really important to know what's going to happen with diet in India over the next 30 or 40 years. And of course, in the poorest parts of the world, I've put Africa there, um, livestock con consumption is not changing very much. So we're going to have to produce more food, and we're going to have to produce more food with increased competition for land, water, energy, and other inputs, phosphates, for example. I'm going to say no more about that, because in this lecture theatre, there are going to be people far better equipped to talk about it. But what I will say is that we have to produce food with all these, with all these increasing competitions within the context of the existential challenge for humanity over the next 100 years, that is climate change. And again, I'm going to say no more about climate change. It just, just to show you one graph produced by um, a group from the Hadley Centre as part of the project, that shows how mean temperatures may change over cropland for a uh, pessimistic and a less pessimistic uh, scenario going in, in, into the future. If we take the most pessimistic scenario, we're going to see much he uh, higher temperatures in croplands. In some places, that might actually be good. The limit of wheat, for example, will go further north in Central Asia. But it will mean that in some areas, particularly in the poorest equatorial uh, areas, it's going to be much harder to produce food at the moment. That's a rather clumsy thing, mean and variance up there. By that I mean not only do we need to worry about climate change, the, the sort of secular changes in climate, but we need to worry about the increased frequency of um, extreme events. And though it's very, very hard to actually say one particular extreme event is due to climate change, the wealth of the evidence, Miles Allen in the Environmental Change Institute here has got some really nice work in this, the weight of the evidence here at the moment is being able to tie down the increased frequency of extreme events with climate change. So there are going to be increasing threats to supply. Then one can't talk about food in general without saying things about the poorest, the one billion people on Earth who go to bed with insufficient calories at night. And if one actually just plots the world's hungry against time, it's remained roughly constant until the last few years where there's been a blip upwards. But that's against the, the, that straight numbers. And if we plot it as a percentage, then it's been rather good news. And in fact, if one was looking at this data around about the turn of the century, one would see that we were on course to meet the Millennium Development Goal of 8% hunger by 2015. And because of what's happened with food prices and the outer kilter supply and demand over the last couple of years, it looks like we're not going to make that. So some of the recent progress on reducing hunger is in peril at the moment. I suspect for this audience, I don't need to just remind you that the fact that we have a billion people hungry on Earth is not because we can't produce enough food, certainly not at the moment. It's because those people are too poor to have economic access to food. Sometimes they don't have physical access to food. Occasionally they don't have social access to food. But it's largely economic access to food. Hunger is a development issue. Some hunger, I should also mention, is due to non-food systems. 
If you're an unfortunate person in Somalia at the moment and you're starving, then yes, climate, climate has a bit to do with that drought. It's largely due because you're unfortunate enough to be in a failed st state. Should also mention, just talking about hunger, it's not just the calorie, the people who go to bed with insufficient calories. There's what's sometimes called hidden hunger, micronutrient deficiencies. Harder to get statistics on this, but probably about a billion people are in some ways uh, under, undernourished. And finally, and here I suck in my tummy, we have the billion that are overnourished. The billion people approximately on Earth that are overweight. And we have issues such as in Mexico at the moment. Mexico, who is making wonderful strides in coping both with calorie hunger and with hidden hunger, but is now suffering an epidemic of obesity and the coronary and metabolic diseases that go with that, which have really curious effects on the whole policy structure of the, of the country. The people who tend to be overnourished are the more influential middle classes who are now sucking limited resources away from, from the poor. So some really complex dynamics going there. And then finally, um, if you come away with one message from the talk today, the way we produce food at the moment is literally unsustainable. If we continue to produce food in the way we do at the moment, we won't have the soils, we won't have the resources, we won't have the wherewithal to produce food going into the future. About 70% of global water, much of it non-renewable, is used to produce food. There's some really scary things about aquifers likely to, to run out. Areas that are economically prosperous bread baskets will not exist. Places in North India, for example. 24% of vegetated land, roughly, I mean, very hard to get accurate figures, suffers from some sort of soil um, degradation. We do terrible things to our, our soils. 30% of greenhouse gases come directly or indirectly from the food system. I'm going to come back to this. Food production is the main source of nitrate pollution and other produ producers as well. And I'm not going to be saying much about fisheries in this talk, but virtually all fisheries, not completely all, but the majority of fisheries are overexploited. And then in addition to this, in addition to these sort of long-term trends, we have had what's happened in the last uh, three or four years. So this is the FAO food price index, which they started in 1990, and has been remarkably constant up to about 2007, 2008, where there was a, 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 a spike. It then went down, and some economists in particular argued, well, it was just a, a, a bit of volatility, but then it's come back again. It's been really quite high now for a couple of months. The graph is to August, and this morning I put the latest figure on for s September. I suspect it will go down, but the um, recent food price hikes and food price volatility have concentrated mines a lot. But although it looks like uh, it's very high now, I would make two points. First of all, food prices over the last 40 years, even really if you include the last bit there, have been literally at a historical low. Food has never, ever been cheaper. You go all the way back to when it, it, the first economy started. You go all the way back to Roman times. Food was more expensive there. And I'd also make the point that volatility, although it's been remarkably low, really back to about 1980. If you go back to the 70s, go back to the oil uh, crisis, and food price volatility was much higher there. So some of the alarm that there's been recently is partly because we've been lulled into a false sense of security over the last 40 years.
Okay, so that's setting the scene a little bit about what's happened in the past. Let me now talk about issues of how one might in the future balance the supply and demand sustainably. And I suppose the first thing, and this is some analysis we did in the Foresight Project, was to look at some of the challenges, those are the challenges that I've just described, and to sort of say, well, what does this actually mean if we try and project into the future? And to do that, we worked with a really good group led by Jerry Nelson at IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute in Washington, who we believe are, are the leaders in this type of modelling. It's partially equilibrium economic models, but models which have really interesting uh, feed-ins from, from physical models of the climate plus hydrological models. And it's then that we think that, that puts them ahead of, of some of the other models. Now, I do a lot of modelling in the biological sciences, and I've spent the whole of my career looking over my shoulder at the physicists and feeling completely inferior. And it was wonderful working with economists, and it's no criticism of the profession of economists, but economists have to make even more heroic assumptions to get their models work to work than we do in the biological sciences. But nevertheless, it, there is no alternative. You have to do them, but you have to interpret them uh, cautiously. I'm going to give you one example of the outputs of Jerry's models. These are for, I'm not going to go into what these different scenarios are, but different assumptions about what might happen to maize yields and various other things going into the future. And uh, Jerry's calculation is looking ahead to 2050 with uh, business as usual and no climate change, then we're getting price rises of the order of 40%. Now remember, people will be richer going into the future, so the 40% price rise isn't as bad as it might appear. But then if one puts climate change on top of that, you're getting price rises of the order of 100%. Now what you can do, and again you need even more heroic assumptions to get it to work, is you can sort of put on calorie models on top of this and try and work out what this means to individual people and their buying power of food. And when you do that, you get some really quite scary things. The risk of food prices being sufficiently high that lots of people are going to be dragged back to into calorie poverty is uh, really very high. So again, I, 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 and I'm sure any economist here would say the same thing, you have to interpret these models with great caution, but it does say that business as usual, we have a substantial problem looking ahead. <laughs> So let me give you a couple of high-level conclusions from the uh, report we, we did. One was that action is needed throughout the uh, food system. There is a sort of argument, a narrative within parts of the research community that essentially all we need to do is to concentrate on producing more food by different ways. And absolutely, we do need to produce more food. But our argument, and we think it's backed up by the best modelling available, is that it's just not a question of production. Action is needed throughout the food system, both increasing supply, the very hard issues of moderating demand, which I'll talk about a little bit in a moment, and then some other very hard issues about the efficiency and the governance of the food system. And I'm going to say a little bit about all of them, but again, the argument is that any intervention we make in supply, in demand, in efficiency, in governance has to be seen through twin prisms. One prism is a prism of sustainability, the fact that we need to do things that we can keep on doing, and secondly, the needs of the poorest, the needs of the bottom billion. We cannot continue just doing things that will help the, the world's richest. Now, another conclusion that we come to, a sort of high-level con conclusion, and 
I, I should have said right at the beginning, I, I'm terribly aware that I'm going to be speaking for 50 minutes about the whole food system. And I suspect there are people here who are real experts on particular uh, elements of it. So I do realize that this is a rather high level uh, approach. And forgive me if I skirt over your individual expertise and please ask questions at the end. But going back to this, another of the high level conclusions we have is that there is very limited new land that can be brought into agriculture. Now, I think many people think that agriculture has expanded greatly over the last 40 or 50 years. In fact, relatively little new land has come into agriculture over the last 30 or 40 years. Only about, I, I, I haven't the exact figure in my, in my head, but I think it's about the, the um, area of arable of agricultural land has increased by about 10%. But um, we argue that there is very strong reasons against increasing it more. And these are major environmental costs. In particular, land conversion releases a lot of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere. And also, much of the land you could convert, biodiversity is where, um, tropical forests is where the world's biodiversity is. Now, there is some discussion among people who are interested about this, about these figures. The OECD come to a very different conclusion and argue that there is a lot of land that can be brought into agriculture, but we're actually counting land in a slightly different way. There is actually little difference. They're talking about the restoration of agricultural land, which we argue also is a great priority. But if you accept this general argument that there is relatively little new land that can be brought into agriculture, and that we must produce more food, and that we must do it sustainable, sustainably, then what comes next is not an argument, it's just a simple logical uh, deduction. And this is a concept which goes by several names, but we call it sustainable intensification. Sustainable intensification is the goals of producing more from the same amount of land, so that's traditional increasing yields, but doing it with much greater input efficiency and reducing the negative environmental effects. And in the rest of the talk, I'm going to be sort of exploring exactly what's meant by sustainable intensification. I won't be able to answer all the issues with it. And I think actually working this through is one of the greatest challenges to people working on the food system over the next few years. OK, so I'm going to say a few things now about production, about demand, and about efficiency. And I have two slides on production. So how does one increase production? Well, one thing, one way to do it is actually to apply the information and knowledge we have at the moment to close the yield gap. So what I've plotted here is some data from the FAO about current wheat yields in France, USA, Argentina, and Kazakhstan. And you can calculate through various ways what you can expect as maximum yields given the local edaphic soil and... and um, and um, climatic uh, conditions. And you can see there that, um, interestingly, in, in the States, but especially in Argentine, Argentina and Kazakhstan, there is a lot that can be done in just producing more food from what we have at the moment. So why does the yield gap exist? Well, one of the reasons is that it may just not be commercially, economically make sense to close the yield gap, to produce more food from that at the moment. That's almost certainly the case in the USA and in France, although in both cases the simple economics is complicated by the, uh, by the subsidies and tariff uh, arrangements. 
So we will see, as food prices go up, as a problem comes, that there will be some correction, that the yield gap, gap will close automatically. And there are some sort of economic fundamentalists who will say, well, there is nothing to worry about. The hidden hand will just close the yield gap, that this isn't a problem that one has to look at. But I think most people think that there are significant, significant barriers that require policy intervention to allow food producers to respond to these price signals. For example, there is what's sometimes called the lack of social capital. Many of our food producers do not have the skills base that is required to produce more food, to respond to the need for more food. Now, it used to be that virtually every country had an extension service, a publicly paid group of people who would go out and would advise farmers. Rich countries had it, poor countries, especially in the colonial period, had it. And for different reasons, we've lost extension services. We've lost it in rich countries because a major policy issue in rich countries has not been producing enough food. It's been producing too much food. When you have butter mountains and wine lakes and things like that, why would you use public money to help farmers produce more food? And we lost it in poor countries for more complex re reasons, because of what might be called the Washington Consensus, the consensus that statist intervention was wrong, that one worked on a much higher scale macroeconomic monetary fashion, uh, manner. And I think in both cases, one wants a revitalization and a remodeling of extension. Certainly in rich countries, there is an argument that if farmers want advice that will put money in their pocket, then it should come from their bottom line. But we're also going to be asking farmers to produce public goods, to put less carbon into the, uh, into the atmosphere. And for things like that, there seems to be a good prime facie case that that part of the extension service should be public funded. And there is a need for economic and physical investment, investment in physical and economic infrastructure. I went to a talk recently about someone who runs massive wheat farms in uh, the Ukraine. And he reckons that they were leaving between 30 and 40% of the grain in the field because they were using Soviet-style, uh, Soviet-era compounds and combines and things like that. And it was just impossible to get the investment in. So there is an issue about, uh, people can argue, is this all that needs to be done? And let me just go on a very slight tangent here, because there is a discussion in people who are interested in this, and in particular in people who have very little affinity with modern biotech. And there is an argument that actually all you need do is, is, is close the yield gap, and there is no need to invest in biotech. There's no need to invest in GM. Okay, so in producing more food, closing the yield gap is part. What about um, the bit I just talked about, the research? Well, there has been a trend over the last 20 or 30 years, especially in the rich West, to invest less and less in agricultural research. Uh, I spent most of my career in London, but I was an undergraduate here in the late 70s when Oxford had a department of agriculture, a department of agricultural economics, soil science, department of forestry. We have none of them now, although we have really excellent plant biologists in plant sciences. But there has been a trend to, to invest less and less, and that is being reflected in a deceleration in the growth of, growth of yields, especially in the crops that we grow in Europe and North America. 
interestingly, in some countries, for example, in Brazil and China, there has not been this slowdown in investment, and their yields have been continually increasing. So um, I think there is an argument that, uh, and I should say that this reduction in investment in agricultural science, again, made quite simple economic sense at a time when we were producing more food. Again, why would you invest in producing more food when we're, when we're oversupplied by food, at least in the rich in, in the rich West. But I think there is an argument that we are going to need to invest more in agricultural research to maintain yields in the face of the constant challenge from pests, pathogens and disease, in the face of new challenges, especially from climate change. But it's not just going to be the old argument that what should be the simple focus of agricultural research is breeding better crops, high-yielding crops, fatter cows and things like that. What's required is a refocusing, or no, to be fair, I should say a continuing refocusing of research so that it's not just looking at yields, but it's also looking at sustainability, in particular resource use efficiency, and applying some of the wonderful advances that we now apply routinely to uh, crops of the rich world, to some of the crops of the poorest. I think that the, the scale of the challenge that the world is going to be faced with food uh, looking at over the next couple of decades means that we require biotech and that it would be foolish a priori to throw away any particular tool, including GM. Having said that, as someone who is literally agnostic about whether GM should be used or not, it drives me mad that both people overhype GM as the one possible solution to food security and then dismiss it completely out of hand because it's something completely different. Well, I think the other really important point, and this is going back to what I said about we've lost so much research in this area in Oxford, is that biotech is critically important, but we have to go back and invest in some of the neglected subjects in agronomy, agroecology, and soils. And particularly, this is something where we're talking in a university. This is an area where it's not going to be very easy to generate intellectual property and make a lot of money. And this is something that the public sector research really has to step, uh, uh, to step up and do. Well, what are the barriers to this? Well, obviously, one of the barriers is money. But I think there's some more sophisticated barriers as well. I think it's critical to understand the social and economic context of research. I think that there is a lot of research that, A, does not look at the actual needs of the end users, especially in low-income countries. <coughs> and secondly, there is basic research that doesn't have a clear pipeline to exploitation, uh, that there's not a clear root map of how things that are being developed in research institutes can actually be commercialized and taken up to scale. And I think part of this is a lack of coordination between public, private, and increasingly third sector research funders. Exactly what is, what is appropriate for the public sector to, to fund? Where should something move from the public sector into the private sector? I think there's some really interesting barriers there to the way we fund research going into the future. Excuse me. So we're in a section looking at supply and demand, and those couple of slides have been on the supply side. 
Let me talk about demand now. And let me start by the um, truism, of the, or almost, that it is impossible for the world to feed in the type of diet that we do at the moment, especially meat, but also some of the other things we eat. Uh, certainly with the way we produce meat at the moment. I say the way we produce meat at the moment is that when the report came out, I was misquoted as advocating switching from meat to artificial meat. And the one time in my life I made the front page of The Guardian was on a completely erroneous quote. Um, I spent a bit of time denying it, and I thought about it. I thought, well, perhaps artificial meat, if it was actually tasty and acceptable, is probably a good idea. So I'm now completely uh, uh, erroneously accepting that quote in The, uh, in, in the Guardian. So um, I think there's some real issues about demand that we are sort of shying away from, both as individuals and both as the body politic it, itself. I think part of the problem is that there's some real research issues here. And as a sort of uh, unreconstructed natural scientist, I've really been turned on to some of the research in the social sciences in this area. In particularly, what are the levels, levers of demand modification. We need really good research in this area so we can go beyond the, the, the sort of uh, saloon bar arguments of nudge and, and, uh, and uh, ideas such as that. And then going back to the natural sciences, we actually need more information on the footprints of different types of food. And then we need means of allowing consumers to make more informed choices. I do think that some of the issues of demand modification are not at the consumer levels. They're, they're regulatory, fiscal, choice editing, as it's called, which is just a posh way of saying you don't allow people to buy, you don't put certain things in, in the shops. But I think empowering consumers to make, um, enforced, uh, to make informed decisions has a lot going for it. We must have better labelling. I, I mean, it, it's crazy the way we label at the moment. It's almost designed to make it, um, uh, uh, to make it difficult to, to, uh, to, to uh, assess the health, let alone the environmental context of the foods you buy. And we need to facilitate an informed debate. And by that I mean, well, well, uh, um, let me give you an analogy. We've known now since the mid-60s that tobacco kills us. Um, there's been essentially no doubt about that. But it's only been in the last 10 years that politicians have been empowered to make decisions by essentially public opinion. Uh, I mean, some of you are too young, but for someone of my age, if you'd asked me in my 20s whether I ever thought it would be possible that you couldn't have a cigarette in a French restaurant, I would never have believed it. But you can't smoke in a restaurant in Paris. After the demographic transition, the most extraordinary thing that's happened in my lifetime. <laughs> sort of halfway between supply and demand, with elements of both, is issues of waste. This graphic up here shows uh, waste in different uh, countries. About 30% of all food produced is never consumed. In low-income countries, that tends to occur on the farm, in the food chain. In high-income countries, it tends to occur in the home, in the, in the food service uh, industry. There is a lot we can do just to increase the amount of food by producing waste, by reducing waste. Although there are some, it, it can sometimes be a bit seductive just to say all we have to do is to reduce waste. Some waste will go just as a response to prices. 
Although certainly on, when we were doing the foresight report, we found it very hard actually to get information about the elasticity of waste with increased prices. And there's also arguments about, um, about what is the optimum level of waste. So certainly some of these things, I think we have to take a more sophisticated view of waste to realise that it's uh, something that needs to be looked at in a more subtle economic way than just all waste is bad. But nevertheless, that surely is, uh, to use a cliche, a low-hanging fruit of, uh, of a contribution to food security. And then let me talk a little bit about uh, governance. And here we're moving to some of the really complex value-laden political issues. So the conclusions that we came to in, in, in the report is of the importance of trade as a means of addressing food security. And this goes against the narrative you often hear of the importance of countries being self-sufficient in food. One of the few things we know that's going to happen with climate change is we're going to get more extreme events and that the spatial correlation of these extreme events are going to increase. So we're going to see large areas having production shocks. I think the argument that is based on that is that we need a sort of globally connected system of bread baskets so that when one area has a major shock, it can be, re it can be compensated for by another. If you do the sums about producing the amount of food we're likely to, to look at, then um, it's really quite optimistic as long as you assume that areas which have natural advantages, for example, Brazil, Ukraine, some of the other uh, Central Asian countries, are able to exploit their comparative advantage. It would make no sense talking about um, self-sufficiency and local food sovereignty if you were, say, the Prime Minister of Singapore, which has no agricultural land, but neither would it make sense if you were the um, Prime Minister of Egypt, the country that produces more wheat, that imports more wheat than any other countries. So if we are going to have global food security, it is essential we get, in jo <coughs> Joseph Stiglitz's phrase, to make, to make globalisation work in favour of, of food security. So I do not see the argument at all for local so food sovereignty. And I won't go into this in great detail, but then we have the issue of how you liberalise trade rules. <laughs> the iniquitous subsidies and tariffs that we in the rich world use to produce to uh, protect our farmers, often uh, using spurious arguments about what it's for. But in order to make this globalisation work in favour of food security, you have to have systems which engender trust in times of crisis. And I think there is actually some good news happening there. When we had the food price spike in 2008, many of the countries in Southeast Asia immediately put in export bans and food prices just went up across the board. When the same thing happened in 2011, they'd made arrangements in the interim for that so that shouldn't happen. And whereas rice was one of the most volatile grains in the first food, food price spike, it was one of the least volatile in, in the second. So I think there is some, some um, good news there. And then just briefly two things I'll say at the, at the end. It's unclear to me, and I think to most people, whether the international organisations we have at the moment, for example, the different UN organisations, are sufficiently coordinated to approach the new challenges of food security. They're still sort of designed for the food security issues of 40 years ago. I mentioned that. Um, I'm just putting this up. I'm not going to talk to it, but just to, to say that I'm saying very little about fisheries here, but there's some really interesting issues, both on the governance level, both on the switch from capture, 
capture fisheries to, to, to fish farming. And then my last slide in this section, and I do stress that this is the longest session, you're not going to get three more two more sessions of this length, is about um, price volatility. So we've seen a lot of price volatility recently. Price volatility is a problem because it leads to inefficiencies in markets and it penalises particularly the poor. And although predicting the mean in the future is difficult, predicting the variance is even harder, but I think most analysts believe that variance is likely to increase in the future, at the very least through climate change, but probably from other things as well. And there are probably a range of things that need to be done. One of the issues that's hugely contentious at the moment is the role of uh, modern commodity trading. There are various issues there about whether computer trading, which can respond very quickly and call very, cause very high frequency fluctuations, trade in so-called synthetic derivatives, derivatives that are not based actually on tons of pork <coughs> belly or tons of wheat, but are based purely on the movements of that. And then issues of what is a maximum uh, holding that an individual company can have in one particular commodity, something that's been discussed right at, at this moment in, 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 the, uh, in the state. So there's issues there. There's also the issues of market transparency. A lot of the volatility is caused because people don't know what's happening. It is a state secret in China to say what Chinese um, grains uh, stocks are. And although intuitively that would seem to make sense, if people know what Chinese stocks are, they could bet against them coming into the market or not coming into the market, then an argument can be made that overall greater transparency, if it can be brought in, and of course there are limits to commercial transparency, these things would lead to a less volatile uh, food system. Um, there have been a lot of arguments recently that we should have global systems of real or virtual grain reserves. won't talk about this in any great detail now, but it does rely essentially on a, on a group of men and women, actually probably men, sitting in a darkened room trying to guess the market, and it's not got a great tradition of that. But then um, volatility will certainly happen and is inevitable and will be really important to bring in particular measures to protect, to protect the poor from that, especially as volatility increases, including appropriate insurance and targeted food reserves for the vulnerable. So that's the main part of the talk. And I'm now, I've got about two or three slides on each on, on the last two topics. <laughs> One is the issue of ending hunger, and those statistics just remind you of what I talked about. And just to remind you what the, might be called the triple benefits of agriculture. Agriculture produces food. It brings income into rural areas. And throughout much of low-income countries, it empowers women. The majority, well, well, literally the majority of food production in Africa is done by women. And again, going back to the, the predominant development ethos throughout the 90 has not been favouring agriculture. It's been far more monetary. Where it has been interventionist, it's been on <coughs> industry rather than on agriculture. And I think an argument can be made that there's been decades of underinvestment, that agriculture is an engine of development. We need to rebuild infrastructure. We need to reposition it in government. We had a fascinating workshop in Nairobi where someone said, well, the, um, the, uh, a job in the agricultural ministry, it, it's really at the bottom. You want to go to finance, you want to go to defense, you want to go to health. And fi finance is it, not attracting uh, the best people. 
And the importance of scaling up best practice, better monitoring and, and evaluation. So monitoring and evaluation is a big issue in development at, at the moment. Some of the major figures in development really are, are uh, pretty awful when it comes to their philosophy of monitoring and evaluation. And I've put up this picture here of broadband being introduced into uh, a, a, a village in Kenya. The way we collect hunger statistics at the moment is using technology that's 30 or 40 years old. There is the possibility of making hunger much, much more visible so that um, the, the people who are trying to control hunger can see what's happening. But so can everyone, so that we can hold our governments, our NGOs to account much more than we do at the moment. I, I just want to list here a couple of the difficult issues in hunger and development. The issue is a small hold of farming. Empowering smallholders in low-income countries is going to be absolutely critical to addressing the needs of the poorest in the world. But I worry very much there's a sort of Manichaean division between people who argue that it's only smallholders and people who argue that really the only way Africa will feed itself is purely by adopting a sort of big Brazilian, or parts of Brazil, I should say, Brazilian-type industrial farming. Low-income countries are far more vari variable than that. They're, it's not a case of one-size-fits-all. Another issue that's very much in the news at the moment is the issue of third-party funders, sovereign wealth funds, big countries, big companies coming in and buying large tracts of agricultural land, especially in Africa and other low-income countries. There's a terrible lack of transparency in this. There's been a real disrespect for local right, rights. Camilla Toulman, who I mentioned earlier, has just chaired a really interesting report on in this for the UN uh, Committee on, on Food Security. But again, one probably doesn't want to write it off completely. If it was done right and transparently and respecting local rights, it could bring in some much needed capital into, into these areas. Um, clearly, and, and, and this I think there's a general agreement about it's necessary and the issue is just how you do it, is the proper involvement in development and defining success of the people who are actually involved. We have in Africa some great things such as farmer field schools where indigenous knowledge is combined with, with, uh, with standard agro agronomics. And um, the nexus between producing food, between health, is a really interesting one. And again, we don't quite understand how they, are, how they are related. There are some really interesting initiatives going on. For example, the Gates Foundation is um, putting a lot of money into biofortification, taking some of the crops in the most arid regions of Africa, the millets, the sorghums, uh, the cassavas, and actually improving them so they're nutritionally better at the moment. <coughs> and then finally, uh, a sustainable food system. And again, that's just repeating some of the statistics for the amount of greenhouse gases that are produced. We're still really at the beginning, compared with anything that I've talked about so far, of working through what we actually mean by sustainability and getting metrics for sustainable intensification. For example, um, and I'm not going to go through this in any detail, we're doing some work with DEFRA at the moment about trying to actually work out... So, so the, government, the UK government has a commitment to sustainability and sustainable intensification, but as a commitment to this without being completely clear what it is. 
And there's some really complex issues. The phrase sustainable intensification, it can be taken what we in the, in the um, natural sciences sort of think as soils and carbon and things like that, but then it can equally legitimately be interpreted as social uh, sustainability. And many people, especially in the farming community, interpret it as economic sustainability. What is the spatial scale on which you talk about sustainability? Clearly, if we talk about sustainable biodiversity, then you don't want your elephants to be preserved in the middle of your farmland and things. There are issues of temporal sustainability. I mean, nothing is going to be sustainable at the moment if we think any use of non-renewable resources in farming is, is not part of sustainability. It, it cannot be sustainable. But there are more sophisticated ways you can incorporate uh, the use of non-renewable non res resources within concepts of sustainability. And then, of course, it's difficult because there is no simple metric that you can pull them all together. And individual values and beliefs also determine what you mean by sustainable intensification. And this comes out very much in, in organic agriculture. So organic agriculture, I don't think physically could possibly feed the world just because it would require converting every bit of land into, uh, into food producing land. But yet organic agriculture has been really important about um, investigating and pioneering a variety of, um, a, a variety of agroecological processes. So I think have a lot to, uh, to offer. Um, I, I'm going to skip over a few things here because I do want to, to, to finish in my, in my uh, allowable time. But I think many of the challenges of sustainability is how do, we, how do we mesh the different goods that are produced by food systems, not only the private goods that benefit the local, uh, the, the farmer itself in a monetary way, but local goods such as flood control and then of course the public goods, um, the public goods such as tying up carbon and things. And so there are issues such as how does one align market incentives, sustainability and trade, and also, as I mentioned before, the role of consumer pressures there. There are enormous opportunities in agriculture. There's a phrase, climate smart agriculture, the number of people, number of groups, especially the World Bank, have, have put, put round. Clearly things have to be done in agriculture to, to, to reduce the, the, um, the amount of of carbon going into the atmosphere. But there is a lot that can be done, and I've just put up a sum there, which if there was a means of, of internalizing the environmental good, would actually be, be something that could be incentivized, and agriculture could very easily produ uh, produce uh, a lot of these goods. And I've talked about climate smart and carbon there, and on a slightly more local scale than what might be called water smart agriculture could also work. But the one thing I would say is that it's not just the greenhouse gases produced by food production itself. One has to look about greenhouse gases in the whole food system. One has to look at it in a more sophisticated way. Food miles themselves is just a pretty terrible way of trying to look at life cycle analysis. And remember in particular that one of the critical things is land use, is indirect land use effects. If we don't produce enough food from the amount of 
land we have in agriculture at the moment and we end up cutting down rainforest, then, then, then that's going to have a, a major effect. And I'm not going to talk about biofuels because if I do, I'll probably froth at the mouse and have to be taken away by men at white, white coats. But the way we are doing, especially first generation biofuels at the moment, is just crazy and overall is acting against the environment. And then I have a final techie point here um, that agriculture has been left out of the Kyoto process because it was thought to be too hard. It nearly got in last December in Cancun, but just didn't. And it's obvious that it must get in uh, if uh, we can't ignore 30% of the greenhouse gas uh, production. I was going to say a little bit about biodiversity there, which is sort of my particular love. There are some really complex issues here. Uh, here. I think there are enormous challenges for the biodiversity community to integrate its policy with the, with the other environmental policies. But happy to answer questions on that. But I, I think I, I'm just going to skip that one. So I do have a final slide. But before I do that, um, I do have a, a, a commercial break in that the um, Oxford Martin School, and I'm really delighted that Jim is here so I can thank him in, in public. The Oxford Martin School has uh, asked me to direct the Oxford Martin program on the future of food. And I do want to stress the fact that this is a program. You're not going to see papers coming out with the Oxford Martin program on the future of food and the address and things like that. What we're trying to do in the program is to bring together people within the working on food in the very broadest area within the university to, to try and facilitate that. Now, I suspect there are people in the room who are working on food within the university who have never heard of me. And uh, I apologize for that. We've been going for just over two weeks. And <laughs> that's my excuse at the moment. If you haven't heard from me in a little bit, then, then, then that will be my fault. What we're going to do is we're going to have, first of all, a website so that if you want to know who else is working on food in the university, there's a one-stop shop that you can find. We're going to do a variety of policy initiatives. The first one that's coming up is with a variety of people, including, um, including Defra Difford and and biz on exactly what sustainable intensification is. And then we have some money for interdisciplinary projects that we're going to be going out. It's a cliche that with academics you can't herd cats, but what you can do is you can move their food. So <laughs> we actually do have some money which we hope that we can use to, to, uh, to, do the, to, to uh, engender some interdisciplinary projects. And I mean really genuinely interdisciplinary there, really cutting right across the divisions. So my final slide, and this is sort of going back to the Foresight Report. Uh, I genuinely think it's, a, it's a, a unique time in history. It's a unique time in history for three reasons. First, the one I've said already, we can now contemplate an end to demand growth, the demographic transition and such. The second reason why I think it's a unique time in history, I mean, not today, 27th of October, but th this sort of decade, I think, is that any, any Earth system that you mention, whether it's carbon, nitrogen, water, whatever, it's now dominated by humans. We are the planet. And finally, I think there is a global consensus on the reduction of poverty, a consensus that has sort of grown since the Millennium Development Goals, but really didn't exist 20 years ago when we were still, or a little bit longer than that, when we were still in the area of the, uh, of the uh, Cold War and things. So it's a unique time in, in, in history, and I think there are three key messages. And for, 
Well, excuse the first one, which is a sort of bit of a natural science jargon. There's a phase change going on in the food system. So especially in the rich world and the middle-income world, where until recently much of the problem has been underproduction, we're now going into an area where, de where the food system is going to be demand-led. Again, another cliche, business as usual is not an option. We will not be able to keep prices within allowable limits. I think there's a good argument that food prices can go up a little bit, but a really dangerous argument if they go up too much. And the way we produce food, as I said at the beginning, is literally unsustainable. The food system and food thinking needs radical and profound change. And then my last point is that um, we fail on food, we fail on everything. So my background is as a biologist, as a biodiversity scientist. We fail on food, we fail on biodiversity. Some of you I know, looking around the audience, work on climate change believe passionately we have to do something about carbon going to the atmosphere. We fail on food, we fail on that. Anything that you care about, if we fail on food, we fail on that. And then finally, if any of you are interested in some of the things that I've talked about, the report itself and all the other stuff is available there. And we had a paper last year in science sort of summarising some of the half-time conclusions of the report. Thanks very much. <laughs>